Father, it just makes, it makes my heart beat so fast to think that Jesus could come right now and set all things straight and turn this world right side up again. And Lord, we know that in the day that Christ returns and we see his face, his glory will be unveiled and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Lord above all heaven and earth and Lord over us and our lives. And God, I pray that every man, woman, and child in this room and all those joining us online would be prepared for the day they'll meet the Lord. That they would trust in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior and their only hope and their great hope would be that Christ on the cross and in his resurrection has done for them what they cannot do for themselves. So may every heart be readied for the return of Jesus and may it truly be our blessed hope today. And Father, we know we're not the only church in this community and we pray for the other churches in Merritt Island and Brevard County. This morning, we specifically pray for Pastor Steve Uke, lead pastor at Park Avenue Baptist Church in Titusville. Lord, I thank you for that long history of faithful preaching and teaching that spans way beyond my lifetime at Park Avenue. Well, thank you for Peter Lord and his great influence around the world and what a special partnership we've been able to have with them through the years. And I pray for Pastor Steve to be filled with the power of your Holy Spirit, the knowledge of your word, and a genuine love of Jesus Christ. And may the people of Park Avenue go forward from their gathering filled with your power to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the people of Titusville. Lord, we love you and we bless your name and we look to you and your word. Be our teacher, make our hearts your home and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you have a moment, just go ahead and be seated. I don't know why I said if you have a moment, go ahead and be seated, but that's what happens when I don't have my manuscript in front of me. Go ahead and turn to Colossians 3 was what I intended to say after you're seated. So Colossians chapter 3 is where we are this morning. Um, In the 80s and 90s, there was an epic television show that aired on public broadcasting. Uh, The show was called The Joy of Painting, and it featured a man named Bob Ross. How many of you all have seen The Joy of Painting with Bob? In case you don't know who Bob Ross is, there's a picture of him that should be going on the screen right there. There's Bob Ross. And if science ever makes a way for my head to grow that head of hair, I'm going to show up one Sunday morning with that glorious masterpiece on my head. Anyhow, there's Bob Ross. You know Bob probably um, from that show. Bob Ross was a master painter, and he would start every episode of The Joy of Painting with a blank canvas right there in front of you. And then through 30 minutes of the television show, he would paint a portrait and complete, at the end of the show, a masterpiece for you to see. But the point of the show wasn't that we would watch old Bob paint a masterpiece. The point of the show was that viewers like us would learn how to paint a masterpiece like Bob Ross. So Bob Ross was just giving us a step-by-step example of how we could paint Happy Little Trees by Quiet Little Stream. That's my best Bob Ross there. It all seemed so simple when I was watching it on TV, right? Just follow Bob step-by-step and there will be your own personal masterpiece. There's only one problem Bob Ross was a master painter. 
And it takes the ability of a master painter to paint a masterpiece. As a matter of fact, I want to show you a few examples. I won't name any names or embarrass anybody today. But here are a few examples of paintings that were done by people who followed Bob Ross's example. Let let me just start with one of Bob Ross's paintings. Here's an example Bob gave his audience. And here's how someone tried to paint that step by step. Notice a difference at all? Let me show you the next one. Here's, here's another example of Bob Ross. Peaceful little stream by happy little trees. Right, right there. Check out this guy's interpretation. Yeah, there you go. That was supposed to be that. In case you think I'm, I'm making this up, I think the next one shows them side by side. Which one's the original? Anyone be able to spot the counterfeit there? Yeah, there you go. There's a little Bob Ross. Here's the point of the whole Bob Ross episode. You need more than an example of a master painter to paint a masterpiece. You need the ability of a master painter to paint a masterpiece. But let me just ask you this. What if Bob Ross could give us more than just his his example? I mean, what if he was able to give you his own ability to paint? What difference would that make to the way that you would be able to make your own masterpiece? Well, I don't know about you, but for me, having Bob Ross's ability given to me would make all of the difference. Bob Ross's example is great, but Bob Ross's ability is even better. And guys, that's how it is inside of Christianity. Jesus came into this world, and many of us know it. He is the perfect example of humanity, but we desperately need more than the example of Jesus. We need the power and ability of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if we go out and try to live in Jesus' example, many of us are painting with our lives the relational equivalent of that picture on your right. (laughs) It doesn't look anything like Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's so terrible. Take it down. I don't want it to distract us from the rest of the sermon. (laughs) And here's what I want you to know about Christianity. Jesus did come and he gave us the perfect example of humanity, but he has done so much more than give us the perfect example. You see, the message of the gospel is that Jesus is able to do what Bob Ross was not able to do, what none of us are able to do. Jesus is able to give his actual ability to live to you. Jesus actually wants For you to follow his example and the way that he lived, and he also desires to give you his ability to make his life a reality in yours. And guys, that's the foundation for Colossians chapter 3. It's what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. Colossians 3 tells us that Jesus is our life. He is the one who lives in his power in us so we can follow his example into the relationships of our life. And last week what we discussed is how that concept looks inside of one particular relationship, inside of our marriage. And this morning... It's just an extension of last week's message. So before I read our text this morning, I just want to remind you of all that we saw last week. Last week, the big idea of our message was that the most important person in your marriage is Jesus. The most important person in your your marriage is Jesus. And I showed you three reasons from the book of Colossians why that's true. First, he is your life. That's the foundation of this text. Only Jesus can enable you to live 
in the way that he calls you to live because he is your life as you trust in him. In other words, the master painting, the master painter desires to make a masterpiece out of your life as you trust in him and live by his power. Christ is the most important person in your marriage because he is your life. He is also the creator, Colossians 1.16. He created all things, including marriage. And as the creator of marriage, he is able to make marriage and has made marriage according to his design in a way that defines how marriage works best. So when you approach your marriage, the most important consultation you make about how your marriage should look It's a consultation with Jesus from his word. What does God have to say about marriage? He's the most important person in determining what your marriage should look like. The third reason is that Jesus is the reason marriage exists. That's also Colossians 1.16. It says all things exist for the glory of Jesus Christ, including all of your relationships. And what we talked about last week is that marriage is designed by Jesus to be a unique way in which his glory glory is made known to his people. It's his relationship with the church that's supposed to be displayed in marriage. And and guys, that's one of the reasons why as we look at marriage, you're able to walk away with a lot of practical takeaways in your life, even if you are not married yourself. Because all you have to do is constantly remind yourself, this is how Jesus desires to live in relationship with me as his bride, as his chosen one. And so whether or not you're married, this sermon on marriage has an awful lot to do with you because Jesus is your life. Jesus is your creator. Jesus is the reason you exist and desires to have a love relationship with you. And the question we asked last week then was, how does that then inform the way we live? Or what does that look like? What kind of impact does the life of Jesus in us have on our relationships, especially in our marriage? And I showed you three things from Colossians 3. Jesus enables us to put off our old self. That's verses 5 through 11. Jesus enables us to put off the things that were part of our life before we came to him. Those types of things that will ruin and destroy our relationships, including our marriages. Things like sexual immorality. Things like anger and wrath and slander and lying. Jesus gives you the power to put those things out of your life forever. Jesus also enables us to put on certain things. The new self. He enables us to put on lives that have compassionate hearts and kindness and forgiveness and patience and love. Things that will enable your marriage to thrive. So Jesus, being Jesus in us, enables us to put off the old self, to put on the new self. And then this morning, we're going to continue by seeing that Jesus enables us to live out the God-given roles that he has for us inside of relationship. That's the third thing we didn't get a chance to talk about last week. So look in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, and we'll continue the lesson that we began last week. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh 
with them. This is the word of God for us this morning, and by God's grace, we'll actually make it through two whole verses of scripture this morning, all right? So here's the story. One of the ways that Jesus has designed marriage to be a display of his glory, to be a portrait of his love for his people, is by giving roles for husbands and wives, by ordaining that men and women in marriage would live in a particular way toward one another. Jesus intends to give his ability to a husband and his ability to a wife to live out God-given roles inside their marriage. That's actually our big idea for this morning. Jesus enables us to live out our God-given roles in marriage. The master painter wants to make a masterpiece in your life, in your home, in your marriage. And one of the ways that he will do that is by giving you his power to live out his roles in your life. And before we look too closely at those roles, I just want to make a general observation because this is the kind of the best point in the Bible for us to make this observation. This observation is somewhat controversial, but it's really clear in my mind. Jesus has created different roles for men and women in marriage. You guys see that there? Verses 18, 19, Jesus has created different roles for men and women in marriage. He gives specific instruction to wives and specific instructions to husbands. Now, that's a pretty big controversy, not only within our culture, but also inside evangelical Christianity. There there are two main views about biblical gender roles in marriage and in the church. There are some Christians today who are known as egalitarians. Egalitarianism says that basically, since men and women are equal in value and in personhood, they should be equal in their roles in the home and in the church. Egalitarians believe that there shouldn't be any distinction between the role of a husband and a wife in a home, and that there should be no limit to the role that a man or a woman could serve inside of the life of a local church. So that's called egalitarianism, kind of that equal word being uh, foremost there. The other view is called complementarianism. And I need you to know I'm a complementarian. This church practices complementarianism. Our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, is complementarian. Complementarians believe that men and women are certainly equal in value and personhood. Absolutely. But there are differences in the design that God has given for their roles inside marriage and for certain roles inside the life of the church. And we believe that those differences are designed by God to complement one another. That complement there is not the compliment where you say a nice thing about someone. It's compliment with that E instead of an I, which means to complete. These, these roles are different because they help to complete one another inside of relationship. For instance, we believe that the Bible reserves the role of pastor, elder inside of a New Testament church for spiritually qualified, God-called men. We're complementarian in that way. We believe that there is a completion to God's design in the church as we reflect headship through the qualified men that God has placed in those positions. That's called complementarianism. And when it comes to those types of issues, I need you to know, church, the primary question that we should be asking is not which view we prefer, okay? It's what does the Bible teach, 
Because right? I know that many of us bring our preferences to how we wish it would play out or what we would want if we were setting the whole thing up. But guys, you need to know this. This is part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We acknowledged earlier just by reviewing the points from last week, we don't have the right to set the whole thing up. Jesus has the right to set the whole thing up. He's the creator. He's the one who's made his design for marriage, for life in general. And so when we come to these questions, we need to ask, what does the Bible teach? And without spending the entire morning talking about egalitarianism and complementarianism, I just want to show you really quickly, and this is really as quickly as I could, three very basic reasons why I believe that the Bible teaches complementarianism and why that is the answer for how God has designed our relationships in marriage and inside of church leadership. Here's the first reason, the plain reading of the text. All right, so we are textualists because we believe that the Bible is the very word of God. And so we look to the text of scripture and simply ask, what does the Bible say? And as I read this text and all the others like it referring to gender roles inside of marriage, the plain meaning of the text seems very, very clear. Husbands are given clear directives Wives are given clear directives, and those directives are distinct within their roles. And that's not just a first century cultural thing. As a matter of fact, in verse 11 of of Colossians 3, Paul says this. He says, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free. He's saying that the gospel breaks down cultural distinctions that would naturally divide our world. But I want you to notice inside that exact text where he says cultural distinctions are broken down inside the gospel. He doesn't seem to think that gender roles conflict with that principle. Because just a few verses later, after saying the gospel breaks down cultural distinctions, he then makes the plain teaching that husbands and wives have gender-specific roles inside of marriage. So as I approach this text, simply the plain teaching of the text leads me to believe that complementary roles are God's design not culture's design. Number two, the historic reading of the text leads me to believe in complementarianism. Here's what I mean. I don't mean just from the moment that the text was written all the way up till now. I mean including from the moment the text was written all the way back through the history of the world to the very beginning. As a matter of fact, when you read the Bible, you find the very beginning of God's creation of man and woman. Back in Genesis 2, God recounts his creation of man and woman, husband and wife. And as he recounts in Genesis 2, he gives us an expression of his purpose in creating a wife for Adam. You see, he had given Adam a specific role to fulfill in the Garden of Eden. And so, when God explains why he would create Eve to come alongside Adam, he says it's to, quote, make a helper suitable for him. In other words, Adam was to lead out in his God-given role in the garden, and Eve was called to come alongside as his helper. And when Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, you need to know he references God's design there at creation to be the foundation for his teaching on gender roles in marriage. He's not taking his cues from culture in the first century of Rome. He's taking his cues from the Garden of Eden, 
and God's design for marriage at the beginning of the world. The third reason I believe in complementarianism is the biblical meaning of marriage. We're not going to go there this morning much. We'll go a few, few minutes later on. But Ephesians 5 is the clearest instruction about marriage in the New Testament. And Ephesians 5 is abundantly clear that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage exists because Jesus desires to have a bride and wants to give us a picture on earth of his love relationship with his church. And in that design to display that reality, husbands have been given the role of being head of their home the way that Christ is the head of the church. And everywhere in scripture and everywhere in ancient Greek literature, wherever that term head is used to describe people in relationship, the person who's called head is given authority over those under their headship. Whether it's the heads of the tribes of Israel, the head of an army, the head of the church, the head of the home, and especially Jesus as the head over all things. And so the biblical meaning of marriage as a display Living out, vividly living out roles that represent Jesus and his church require a complementary approach to those relationships to adequately represent Jesus and his church to our world. And listen, I know we could go on and on about this, and I know that our world is going on and on about this. I realize this is an unpopular, unpopular teaching in our culture. I also know that we have had people leave our church over the last 10 years because of our view on these issues. I know this is an increasingly divisive issue inside evangelical Christianity, and we don't intend for that to be the case here. But church, we are committed... (laughs) to the Bible as the very word of God and the clearest interpretation of scripture does not begin with what I prefer. It doesn't begin with what I think. It begins with what has God said. And the clearest interpretation I know of this passage of scripture is that Jesus has created marriage And he's designed the roles for husbands and wives inside marriage to reflect the dynamic of Christ's relationship to his church. And that means it is Christ's design and desire that husbands would love and lead their wives like Jesus and that wives would submit to their husbands in a way that is fitting in the Lord. This is the word of God for us. So let's spend the rest of our time just considering God's clear word for us. Let's look at the roles here that he gives us and start there with the first one, roles of wives. And I want to remind you, Jesus is the one who promises to empower your life in this role. So number one, Jesus enables wives to submit to their husbands. That's why we read there in verse 18. And that word submit means to voluntarily yield to someone in love. It means that you have chosen to willingly yield, not to be forced, not to be fought, but to willingly yield to the leadership of someone God has placed in authority 
in your life. I, mean, I know there's a lot of confusion about the idea of submission. As a matter of fact, I want to encourage you, if you'd like to pray and think and learn more about this matter, look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, especially verses 22 and 24. And I want to encourage you even to go on our website. We have preached messages much more specifically about just this issue from those passages of Scripture. So if you go in those old sermons, you can look up messages that are just about submission and tell a lot more than what I'm able to say this morning. But I want to give you two biblical insights about submission that I really pray will help us as a church family understand what biblical submission is and what it isn't. First, submission is for everyone. Okay, let me just say that. This is a really important biblical concept. Every follower of Jesus Christ is called to submit to God-ordained authority. All right? James 4, 7 says we are called to submit to God. Romans 13, 1 says we are called to submit to government leaders. Ephesians 6, 1 says we are called to submit to our parents. Hebrews 13, 17 says we are called to submit to church leaders. Ephesians 5, 24 says the church is called to submit to Jesus Christ. Guys, submission is a command for every follower of Jesus. And that makes this point that is primarily directed toward wives submitting to husband a point of reflection for every man, woman, and child in this room. As a matter of fact, I can't help but wonder as I think about the call of God in our lives as followers to submit to God-giving authority. I can't help but wonder if wives in Christianity have struggled with the idea of submitting to their husbands in part because of the way Christian men have failed to lead by example in their homes about submitting to authority. I mean, I just want to start with you. Is your life marked by submission, by a voluntary, willing yieldedness to the authority God has placed in your life? Do you lead by example in your home of a voluntary, joy-filled, faithful, hope-filled submission to God, to government, to government. Did I repeat that? What about your boss? The authorities at your workplace? In your home, do the people in your life get the hint that you believe God has called you to live a life of submission? Does the way that you speak about those who are in authority over you show a desire to honor them and their God-given role over your life? Guys, submission is for everyone, and no one makes that more clear than Jesus himself. The idea that submission devalues people is blown out of the water when you realize that Jesus was a man who lived in submission to authority. He submitted to his earthly parents, his government leaders. He even supported paying taxes to Caesar. I know all of us wish he'd answered that question a little bit differently, right? He submitted to his heavenly father. So to be like Jesus Christ is to be submissive to authority. Here's what that means. If you have a problem with authority, if you have a problem with submission, man, woman, or child, if you have a problem with submission, you have a problem with God. You have a problem acknowledging that God is God and you are not. 
And he has authority to place authority in your life. As a matter of fact, that's actually the second insight. Submission is not just for everyone. Submission is to authority. And what I mean by that is we're called to submit to God-given authority that's invested into certain roles. And it's the authority of certain roles that give the person in that role authority. It doesn't mean that everyone has authority over everyone else. Men do not have authority over women just because they're men. Did you know that? Well, if you want a trial run, I want you to Tell my wife what to do and see how that works out for you. My only request is that you let me know in advance so I can pop a bag of popcorn, pull up a chair, and watch the show, right? Paul is not saying that all women are called to submit to all men. Paul is saying that God has invested authority within certain roles that's to be expressed for those who are in leadership within those roles. He's clearly saying submission is for wives to their husbands, specifically, not just women to men. As a matter of fact, there are women who serve in places of authority over men all the time. Judges, police officers, military, management, and ownership of workplaces. God invests authority into certain roles in order to maintain order in our lives, in our culture. And submission to authority is just a way of honoring God's design to those particular roles. So submission is to authority that is invested into particular roles. And that means that men don't have authority over women just because they're men. And it means women are not devalued in the eyes of God or in our eyes as well simply because they may live in certain relationships that have authority in those particular roles. So submission is for everyone, but it's only to God-given Authority. As a matter of fact, that's where the clear boundary comes in our text. You find in verse 18, he says that we should submit, wives should submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He gives a clarifier there. What does submission look like? What does God honoring submission look like? Well, he says only as is fitting in the Lord. And I take him to mean two things by that phrase. First, I take him to mean that you should submit to your husband because Jesus is your Lord. And here's why that's important. It's your way of saying, Jesus has said to do this, and so I trust and honor Jesus, even when I at times struggle to trust and honor you. This is about me submitting to the Lord, who is perfect and knows everything, including how my life and our marriage will work best. And so I'm honoring Jesus as I submit to the leadership of my husband. You don't submit to your husband because he's smarter than you. You know why? Because he probably isn't. And you don't submit to your husband because he only makes great decisions. You know why? Because he probably won't. You submit to your husband because you trust that Jesus Christ is Lord over you and over him. And he's strong and mighty and he will take care of you. And as your Lord, he's called you to yield to your husband's leadership. The second thing I take Paul to be saying is not only do you submit to your husband because Jesus is Lord, but you submit to your husband until it's no longer fitting in the Lord. Listen, if your husband tells you to disobey the commands of Jesus in Scripture, you had rather obey God than man, even if that man is your husband. Again, this not only clarifies how wives submit to their husbands, it also clarifies how we all submit to God-given authority. 
This is a good way of saying it. Good time to say it. If our government or our spiritual leaders attempt to make us follow them by disobeying the clear teaching of Jesus in the word, we had better obey God rather than men. We have one Lord. His name is Jesus. And we submit as it is fitting in our Lord Jesus. And it's never fitting in the Lord for the authority of men to lead us to disobey God. And on a very practical note, that is one of the reasons why I believe it is wrong for a wife to endure abuse in the name of submission. You know why? Abuse is never fitting in the Lord. And any sinful, misogynistic, chauvinistic pig who calls himself a man of God and uses this as an, as an excuse to abuse the people in his life has abdicated his role under God. And, and I may seem angry about that, and I just got mad about it. You need to know. Because it is, it is defiling the name of God for a man to use the role that God has given him to abuse the people in his life. It is never fitting. And women, if you are living in abuse... I want to encourage you to reach out to someone. Reach out to someone, including the proper authorities. Submission is not cowering in fear in front of an abusive, godless, sinful man. And so, so live in submission to the Lord. And do not allow abusive people to be enabled in their abuse. The safeguard he gives us is submit as is fitting in the Lord. We've got to move on. Submission is a call to live like Jesus is Lord, like he has the right to put people in, submission, in positions of authority in our lives. And our submission is only and always as is fitting in the Lord. And wives, I just want to ask, is your marriage marked by Christ honoring submission to your husband? Do you encourage his leadership Would your children say that you desire to follow the leadership of your husband? Maybe I'd ask it this way. Do you make your husband fight to be the leader in your home? Or do you voluntarily yield in love to him and reverence to Jesus? And single ladies, if you're thinking about being married one day, how are you living in submission to authority? How do you live like Jesus is Lord? Because it's not just about your marriage. It's about your whole life. Either Jesus is Lord of all or Jesus is not Lord at all. The best preparation you will ever have in marriage for marriage is by learning how to follow the leadership of Jesus Christ as your Lord. And remember, you can't do that on your own. That's why you need Jesus. And you don't just need Jesus. If you will place your faith and trust in Jesus, he will give you his power As the one who lived out a perfect example of human submission on this earth, he will give you his power to live in submission to God-given authority. So all of us, wives, husbands, men, women, are you living in submission to Jesus by submitting to God-given authority in your life? Now, let's turn the corner here. Let's talk about husbands with the rest of our time together. Jesus not only enables wives 
to submit to their husbands, Jesus enables husbands to love their wives. Verse 19, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That word harsh means to cause something to become bitter. So the call of Christ for husbands is to love their wives, and I say lead them too, because he just told wives to submit to the leadership of their husbands. So embedded inside of this, is that dynamic that husbands are then called to lead. And so, so husbands are called to lead, but specifically we're called to lead in love without being harsh, without causing our wives to become bitter. And remember, Jesus has painted the perfect masterpiece of what this looks like. How do we lead in a way that can keep our wives from growing bitter? Well, let's look how Jesus led. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. I just want to read a few verses here that describe how Jesus used his authority to love his bride. And I pray you'll see that it's the perfect safeguard for bitterness from creeping into our lives. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives. And then he begins to describe the masterpiece portrait Jesus has given us as an example. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice the example the masterpiece of love that Jesus has given to us. First of all, Jesus loves his bride. Notice that sacrificially. It says there in verse 25, he gave himself up for her. Listen, Jesus gave himself up by laying his life down. And that's how men are called to lead in our homes. Christ-like leadership is not about flexing our muscles to show that we are in charge. It's about sacrificing our lives for the good of our wives. Loving and leading like Jesus, men, means we wake up every single morning and the very first thing we do is die to ourself. Let me get really practical here for just a minute. That means that we're willing for the dreams that we had when we were single men living at home, playing Xbox on the couch with our parents. Those are willing to die for the sake of our marriage. It means we're willing for our golf game to suffer and our fishing to suffer so that our marriage doesn't. It means we're willing for our career to suffer so our marriage doesn't. It means if someone is going to harm our wives, then they'll have to do it over our dead bodies. It means that when we are making decisions about our family, the last person we think about is ourselves. Guys, loving and leading like Jesus is a life of daily dying to yourself. You want to keep your leadership from causing the people in your life to be bitter? Then die to yourself and live for them. Use the authority and opportunity that God has given you to do what's best for them. That's actually the next thing that we see. Jesus not only loves his bride sacrificially, he loves his bride beneficially. Did you notice that there? So that he might sanctify her, verse 26, washing her with the water of the word and present to himself a church in, in 
splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus used his authority sacrificially for our well-being, to meet our deepest needs. So if we're going to love our wives like Jesus, men, then one of the most important questions that we will ever ask inside our marriage is this, what does my wife need? Not what do I want? I know I've told you this story before, but at the risk of being redundant, you all know I only have three or four stories in my repertoire, so I'm going to tell this one again. When Emily and I were first married, I had no idea what she needed. I mean, I guess I thought being married to a specimen like me was all she could ever want, right? Why did you laugh so hard at that? I will never forget the day I came home after work, and uh, we'd been married maybe for a couple years at that point. Um, Our son Logan was just a baby. Emily had been home all day taking care of him and had a great dinner ready for us to enjoy. After dinner, I wanted to catch my favorite show on ESPN, Pardon the Interruption, starring Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. I haven't seen it in about 10 years because of this story. So as I'm sitting on the couch watching Pardon the Interruption on TV, Emily's in the kitchen washing dishes, and I'm pretty sure that the baby was crying to the top of his lungs. And if I'm not mistaken, she either was holding him in one arm or had him in the high chair or was in one of those bouncy things on the, the floor. And I think this was the one that was. And she was bouncing him with one leg, washing dishes in the sink. Pretty impressive, right? It's also really noisy. And so I could barely hear the TV and I had to turn up the volume even louder. Well, you know, I was really suspicious. When I turned off the TV, the pots and pans started clanging even more. So I turned up the TV again, right? And then the noise from the kitchen started to sound like a tornado moving through a junkyard, just clanging everywhere. So I looked over at Emily and I said, are you serious? (laughs) To which she quickly replied, are you? Um, I'm going to spare you the details about what happened next. Um, But through the grace of God and the linguistic ability of my wife, I realized I was completely blind to what she needed from me. I was just, I was totally, totally blind, just oblivious. I was not trying to neglect her, even though I was doing an incredible job at it. And that's when God gave me a question that has literally changed our marriage. Emily, how can I serve you? I must ask her that several times a day. And I I, got to tell you guys, you may be oblivious to just how oblivious you actually are. And your call is to meet the needs of your wife. And if you want to know what your wife needs, you know what you could do today to help? Ask her. Like, really, sit down for a moment and just say, babe, what do you need from me? And when you ask, and she, if she does, and I pray she will, tells you what she needs, do it. Do it. And it might be folding laundry. Learn. 
It, it might be making beds, learn. It might be washing dishes, learn. It might be stepping in to the hardest relationship she's had to endure on her own and you've been absent from. It may be working less hours. It could be changing your job. It could be stepping in to conversations you've avoided your whole marriage. It might be being a, muff, a bu- buffer between her and your family. I don't know what it is. Ask her. Your call, man, inside your marriage is that you would love your wives sacrificially for her well-being. Dying to self, living for her. Wives, would that keep you from being bitter? So husbands... Christ is calling you, and he's even telling you not only what's good, he's telling you what's best. Ephesians 5 says it's to sanctify her. That simply means to make her more and more like Jesus, bring her closer and closer to Jesus. Verse 26 says that happens through the ministry of the words. Husbands, the greatest leadership you're ever going to exercise inside your marriage is to lead by leading your wife and children to Jesus, by pointing her to Christ over and over and over again, to pray, to read the Bible, to speak the truth of the gospel when she's starting to hear the lies of our culture, to make it clear in your home that the Bible is the word of God, your absolute authority, and that you and your family will live according to God's design in his word no matter what because Jesus is the Lord of your house and your home and your heart. So husbands, are you loving and leading like Jesus? And remember, Jesus doesn't just give us the example, guys. He gives us himself. The master painter is willing to paint a masterpiece in you as you trust in Jesus. So the last thing I want to encourage you to do today is to go out from this place, roll up your sleeves, and try your best to live like Jesus. Come to Jesus today. Lay your life down before him. Lay your marriage down before him and acknowledge that Jesus is the most important person in your marriage because only Jesus can live like Jesus in you. Would you bow your heads? Let's make our prayer before the Lord. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus... I pray you'll hear the good news of the gospel. That Jesus gave his life on the cross. Dying for your sin. The thing that separates you from God. Dying for your sin in your place. So that you could be forgiven and restored to him. And that Jesus would take you as the love of his life forever. So if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. Right now would you call on Jesus to save you. Call on Jesus to save you. For all the single people in this room who may or may not be preparing for marriage but absolutely are called to live in relationship with Christ, would you ask Jesus to show you where you're struggling to yield and submit your life to him as Lord? Would you ask him for power to enable you to step into obedience today. 
And for husbands and wives, would you ask that the Lord would commit your heart to faithfully live according to his design for your home? that you would yield to Jesus as you live in love for him and one another. And would you ask Jesus to live in you and to make a masterpiece of your life, of your home. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And God, I pray that you would help us in a culture that is redefining everything and marriage is included, I pray that you would help us, God, as your people to bow before you and your word and to do life your way. I pray for the marriages, husbands and wives who are under attack in this room. And I know there are husbands and wives under attack in this room. Lord, we need you. We need you to show off your resurrection power to take marriages that are dead today and make them alive. Lord, we need you to give us wisdom to know how to lead in a way that is best. As we men die to ourselves and live for your glory and the good of our bride. Lord, we need Jesus today. So raise us up by your power. Be exalted in us for your glory. And make our marriages a display of your powerful grace as your masterpiece of gospel truth in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.